Amen. Hope you guys are good. Everybody ready for Christmas? No, yeah, no, no. Yeah, I, I got all mine done this week. I found out a secret. Um, guys, if you're buying for your wife, girlfriend, come see me. I finally figured this out after 22 years of marriage. And so come see me. Um, I will be glad to impart what I have learned to you. Um, and it's, it's glorious. It's glorious. Um, so anyway, we're going to be in the book of Haggai, as John said um, earlier. And remember, we're looking now at prophets, these minor prophets, as we've been going through this series, these minor prophets that um, the last two, Zechariah and Haggai, were prophets who prophesied after the exiles had returned. And so we've been looking at this. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Habakkuk and Habakkuk was prophesying kind of at a point where this invasion of the Babylonians into Jerusalem was imminent. And they came in, they, they just took over Jerusalem. They took many of the people back into captivity with them in Babylon. Um, and so now we're at this point where about 70 years, almost 70 years have passed. And uh, Babylon or Babylonians are no longer in control, but the Persians have now taken control and they're beginning to allow these Jewish people to come back and rebuild the temple of God. And so this is what we're looking at. We're on the other side of the exile. Now, as these people are coming back, Zechariah, Haggai, both prophesied during this time and both of them prophesied, uh, mostly to get these Jewish people who had returned to rebuild the temple. When they came back to rebuild, what happened is they came under a lot of resistance, a lot of opposition from the other people around them. And so the, the temple, after they laid the foundation, actually lay dormant for about 14 years. Nobody was building on it. And so God raises up Zechariah and Haggai to come in and begin to kind of give them a kick in the rear and say, look, start or finish what you started, right? Finish what you started. Get this going again. Don't stop now. Build the temple of the Lord. And so that's what we're looking at is Haggai coming in and he's really trying to encourage them to finish what God had them start. And so if you want to look there in the book of Haggai chapter one, we're going to read down to verse 11. It says in the second year of King Darius, now King Cyrus um, the Persian king had allowed them to come back. God moved in the heart of King Cyrus to send these Jew Jewish people back to rebuild this temple. Um, now King Darius is in charge. It says, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways or give careful consideration to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you have never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. So he says this twice. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. 
What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil. These are all things that were staples of their economy. And everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So let's pray and we'll get into this. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your love, Lord. Your mercy that's new every morning. Your grace that's made a way for us to come to you. That you love us so much you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God, I thank you for that. I thank you for hearts that have already been stirred this morning. I pray today that the living word of God would stir our hearts even more, Lord, as we look at the fact that we today, God, are your temple, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that he would work in us in a mighty way today, Lord, that we would leave this place, God, with our hearts stirred, with our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus, on your purposes, on your kingdom, Lord. I pray, God, that we would be people who do bring you glory and honor, that we would be a people who care for those around us, God, that we would not, not stop at anything, Lord, that nothing would hinder us, no resistance even from people around us would hinder us from accomplishing the purposes for which you have sent us, Lord. I thank you for it, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are here. God, have your way in our hearts. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Sometimes for me, um, I can see things and, and sometimes people might be kind of freaking out over things, right? And, and you may have seen this and you kind of look at it and you're like, that's not that big a deal, right? It just doesn't seem like it's that big of an issue. But, but other people see it as a really, really big issue. Then there's other things that I recognize immediately, at least for me, this is a big issue. And one of those times was when we had gone to Poland, my oldest son and I, we went to Poland to play in a baseball tournament. Believe it or not, instead of just going like to Mill Creek, we went all the way to Poland. And so we go to Poland and play in what was called the European Championship, okay? Sounds incredible, really was not. I found out the Polish don't play much baseball. Um, great people, good at soccer, baseball, not their thing. Um, so uh, we ended up winning the tournament and all this, but it really was not as great as it sounded. It sounded like we were going to the Olympics. We got there, it was like, wah, 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 you know. And so um, anyway, we get ready to come home. And so the way we, we came home was from Warsaw to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Atlanta. Well, we get from Warsaw to Amsterdam and we're waiting on the next part of our, our journey. And, and they tell us that we're going to be delayed because of some mechanical issues. All right, so there's red flag number one for me. I'm about to fly to the Atlantic issue and the plane I'm gonna be flying on has mechanical issues. I'm already a little bit freaked out because I don't get to fly the plane. I don't get to know what's going on. My life is in the hands of somebody I've never met before in my life and there's mechanical issues. So I'm a little bit nervous about that already. Well, then we go and look out the window and the mechanical issue happened to be um, the engine. And they've got the hood of this engine lifted up and, and I can see the flashes of light where somebody is welding inside this engine. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we are about to fly over the Atlantic Ocean, like nine, 10 hours over the Atlantic and they are welding on our engine. 
Uh, to me, that was a big deal, right? And sometimes we can look at things and we're like, what's the big deal? Sometimes we look at things and we say, wow, that is a big deal. And when we come to the book of Haggai, when we look at Zechariah, when we look at um, the the temple having been destroyed by the Babylonians, and and we look at how um, Jeremiah had prophesied in 70 years, they would come back and rebuild the temple. And and we look at that and, and it would be easy for us to look at that and go, what's the big deal? It was a building that got knocked down, right? Really after 70 years, it matters that much that they go back and rebuild this building. I mean, think about this. Think about if something happened and this building got bulldozed, right? And then uh, all of a sudden, 70 years later, they're like, hey, go back and rebuild that building. Well, at that point, who really cares, right? It's just a building. It was a place to meet. So what was the big deal about the temple? Why was it so important that the temple be rebuilt? If we're going to understand Haggai, we're going to really understand Zechariah. We're really going to understand God's plan and purpose, not just for the Israelites, these Jewish people. We have to understand all of this to understand our purpose, to understand why we're here. That it's a big deal even for us today. I want to read some other passages of scriptures. These are not going to be on the screen, but if you have a Bible, you can turn to them. Um, Also, if... um, you know, you, you won't go on your phone and you want to look at that, turn there also. So the first one is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Go to your left from Haggai. You got to go a good ways. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. This is what it says. Now, this is God speaking through a prophet to King David. And it says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. Now, this is a prophecy of Jesus. Jesus would ultimately be the one from David's lineage who would sit on the throne of God forever, who rules and reigns already. One day this kingdom will be consummated. It will be full But he goes on and says, he is the one who will build a house for my name. Now, eminently, what he's speaking about is King Solomon. King Solomon will come and build this temple for the Lord that it was in David's heart to build. But it wouldn't be David who built it, it's Solomon. And this is what he says, he is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A house for my name. Now, when we look at that, when he says a house for my name, it's not just so he can put it, you know, like God, Yahweh up on the door, door frame, right? And when he says name, it means for his glory. It means for the world to know him, to recognize who he is. And he's saying this temple would be built to bring him glory. See, God's intent was always that the nations would come to him. It was always that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And one of the functions of the temple had to do with their purpose. And that purpose was to bring glory to God. It was to be a place for God's glory and for the knowledge of his glory to go forth and fill the earth. So it was tied to Israel's purpose. It was tied to God's glory. Listen to Exodus chapter 33 now. Exodus chapter 33. 
We're going to read verses 12 through 16. Now Moses said to the Lord, so at this point Moses is leading the Israelites. He's shepherding them, guiding them. God is speaking through him to them. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people. This is after a severe rebellion of the Israelites against God and Moses. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else would distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? See, for the Israelites, the temple represented more than just a building. It represented more than, than just a place for them to go even and worship. It represented the fact that God was with them. It, it represented the fact that of all the other nations, that God resided with them. It's like in John 1, when Jesus came and, and walked the earth and he was born into this earth, John 1 tells us that he came and dwelt amongst us, tabernacled amongst us. This was a huge deal because God is amongst his people. When Moses says this here, he says, Lord, you know, God, don't send us up there if your presence doesn't go with us. I'm sure some of it was Moses's affection for God, but he tells us in that last verse we read that the big issue of this is if you don't go with us, what will set us apart from all the other nations? See, God's presence, the one true God residing with Israel, it was a part of their identity. The temple out of everything to the Israelites was, was so precious and huge to them because of all the people. We may be looked down upon, we may, we may not be thought of very highly, but for us, we know that God dwells with us. The one true God dwells with us. It was huge. It was huge. One last thing I want you to see, if you go to the right just a little bit into Leviticus, that book we never read, right? Leviticus 16. I want to read verses 3 through 10. This is about the day of atonement. It's the day that the high priest would go in and make a sacrifice for his sins, his family's sins, and the sins of the nation of Israel. Aaron, Moses' brother, is the first one who does this. He's the first high priest over the nation of Israel. It says, this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put it on the sacred linen. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he's to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, 
one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat, you hope the lot fell for you to be the scapegoat, right? You'll see why. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now go to Romans. This is, you gotta go way forward, way to the right. Through the gospels, go through Acts. You'll come to Romans chapter three. Verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Now in this section, Paul has been making um, since chapter one, this convincing argument that we are all sinful. He says, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet, when he says there, he's meaning us, all of us. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Down to verse 23 now. And it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the temple was also this place of sacrifice. We see in Leviticus chapter 16 where this was prescribed. But I would encourage you, go back and look at Genesis chapter three to see where this really began. Because it was immediately after the sin of man that God sacrifices an animal and makes garment of, of animal skin to clothe them, to cover their sin and their shame and nakedness. It was the point to say, look, you're never going to be able to make a covering for your sin that suffices. It will always be up to the Lord to do that for you. And we come to Leviticus and we see that this kind of trail of blood, this line of blood has continued from Genesis all the way through all of these other sacrifices. And what we see is we come to Leviticus and God is giving specific instruction on how the sacrifice on the day of atonement for the sin of the high priest, his family and the people of Israel is to be made. He says, first you come in and you sacrifice this bull. That's for your sin and the sin of your family. He says, then bring in two goats. He said, cast lots. It's kind of like rolling dice or something to, to figure out um, which one's going to be which. The one that fell to the Lord um, as a sacrifice, they would sacrifice it and sprinkle the blood on the altar. The one that was the scapegoat, they would put their hand on it, signifying the transference of, of Israel's sin onto the scapegoat, and they would take him out and they would send him and set him free to go into the wilderness. It does two things. It shows us this, that the ultimate sacrifice will will do two, two different things. One, it will ultimately pay the price for our sin. In the goat that was sacrificed, who gave his life for our sin. But that sacrifice would ultimately also take away our sin. And so the goat that is let go, this scapegoat literally is let go to show the separation of sin from God's people. And so the temple was this place of sacrifice, this is where this took place. It was why it was such a big deal for that building that we, you could look at and people could go, it's just a building. No, it was more than a building. It represented their purpose and God's glory. 
It represented his presence with them. And it was the place of sacrifice because as we read in Romans 3, we are all sinful and need a way to be forgiven. But then you could ask another question, right? When we look at this. I know when, when my kids were little, at this point, we lived about 10 miles out of town, 10 minutes out of town. And from our house to where we were going in town, they could ask 4,000 questions at least. Why, 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 why? And we could do the same thing with this, right? Well, that's great. Okay, now I understand why it mattered for the Israelites. But why does it matter to us? Why does the temple being rebuilt matter to us? Glad you asked that question. First Corinthians chapter three. Go all the way into the New Testament. You got to go right there just past Romans where we just were. First Corinthians chapter three. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17. This is the apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Right now in this part, they're experiencing a lot of division. Some of the people are saying, I follow Apollo. Some are saying, I follow Paul. Some are saying, I follow Cephas. Some, yeah, but, but what they're missing is that they were all one in Christ. They were all intended to follow Jesus. And so Paul writes this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, meaning these divisions, if, if someone brings these divisions in or allows these divisions, if anyone destroys God's temple, you could almost say by these divisions or anything else, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. It sounds like to me that the temple is still really important to Paul, but it's different, isn't it? He's saying you are the temple. And this is one of those times we talk about where you means y'all. This is us together. We are the temple, sacred, set apart, consecrated, holy in Christ to be God's temple. And he says, you are the temple of the Lord. He lives in you. And so we see that right there. Now flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18 through 20. This is Paul addressing sexual immorality with the Corinthians. In verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He said, don't commit sexually immoral acts. Why? Your temple, your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So now you is singular. You means me and you, like one person. And so we see this where I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we see now that the temple is still extremely important, but it's no longer a building. Now the temple is us. And the Spirit of God lives in us. I've got one more question for you. If all of this is true and God lives and dwells in us, the living God, the God of the universe, and as Paul wrote um, in another letter, I believe it was to the Ephesians, he tells us this, that the very resurrecting power, the resurrection power of God lives in us. If that is the case, I would ask you one more question. 
has the church exhausted its potential? Have we exhausted our potential? Like have we, have we topped out? Have we hit our ceiling? Not even close. We haven't even started. Not even close. But why is that? There's so much more out there for the church. Why is it? I believe it's this. That too many times we as believers, we as people in the church, we do what Jesus said we shouldn't do. We put our hand to the plow and we look back. See, Jesus said this in a part of his teaching where he's talking about people making excuses. People say, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. I want to follow you. And he says, but, but some say, let me, you know, one says, let me go bury my father. Another says this. Another says, I just bought a piece of land. Let me go look at it. And it goes on and on and on. And we see the human nature that, that, that we are very quick to rationalize and find reasons to not build. If you look at Haggai, what were they doing? They were saying the time has not yet come. The time has not yet come. And yet what was the very purpose they were sent for? They were sent back to build this temple. Today, church, we need to consider our ways. We need to consider our ways. Have we put our hand to the plow and look back? This is really serious because Jesus said those who do that are not fit for the kingdom of God. Have we put our hand to the plow and look back? I believe this. The reason that this happens is we get distracted. So many times we get distracted. We, we, we take our eyes off the goal. If you've ever been running on a treadmill, sometimes I might be at the gym and I don't do a whole lot of running anymore. It's more like a um, waddle um, on the treadmill. But if the TV in front of me has got like a soap opera and then the one over here has got football, of course I'm watching the soap opera. I mean, no, I'd rather watch the football, right? But what happens when you take your eyes off of what's in front of you? It can get embarrassing quick. And I've had, I haven't ever fallen, but I've, I've, my foot's hit the side and I thought I was going to fall. It's embarrassing. You know, it's when you kind of look around seeing if anybody saw that and everybody's like, <laughs> trying to act like they didn't, right? And, and it happens and we get so distracted so easy. I can... A lot of times if I do go exercise, I'll put my earbuds in and I listen to a lot of podcasts and things while I'm exercising. And you know, I get distracted by things in the gym like trying to breathe. And so I've got that podcast in and I'll find myself hitting like that, that little button that this goes like back 15 seconds. I'm like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, miss the last two minutes, right? And you go back, you just get distracted and your mind is taken away from it. And I believe that's what's happened to these Israelites. They've had this miracle of getting sent back, but already through resistance and through needing, they're looking at it saying, I got to take care of my own needs. They've gotten distracted. I wonder how many of us in here today have gotten distracted from what God first called us to. This relationship with Jesus. This community of people. This incredible purpose that he's given us. Today, I hope and I pray that the Lord would pull our attention back. We put our eyes back on the Lord. I know when my granddaddy was alive and he grew up really poor, but um, he used to tell me about plowing uh, behind a mule. 
And they had like a single plow. You've probably seen some of these maybe in an antique place or whatever. But he would plow behind that. And he said, you'd always pick out a spot on the other end of the field. And you plowed to that field or plowed to that point so that the row would be straight. And when you think about that, if we begin to look to the left or the right, we get hindered. Jesus in Matthew 13, he said that sometimes the fruit in our life isn't produced because we get distracted by the deceitfulness of wealth and the cares of this world, but it could be any number of things that's distracted us from the call and the purposes of God as his temple. I would challenge us with this, that if we will reflect on the right things, if we will take careful consideration as Haggai spoke the word of God to them and said, give careful thought to your ways. If we will take time to reflect on the right things, then our lives will begin to look really different. Paul instructs us several times to set our minds on things above. He says, set your minds on, on things above, you know, not on earthly things because you no longer belong to these earthly things. If we'll set our minds on Christ, if we will fight to not allow distraction to come in between us, we will see change in our life. Here's the challenge of it. Busyness and the hassle of life, it will rob us of our ability to consider anything, much less the right things. We need margin in our life somehow, guys. Because if we don't have margin, if it's all busyness and the hassle of running from thing to thing, you know what takes over? Habit. If you notice, the busier you get, the more habitual you will become. You'll begin to do things that you don't even think about why you do them. I can go through my whole morning routine and just, it's just bam, 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 bam. Well, I'm just trying to get out the door. Just becomes habit, 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 habit. We don't take time to consider. But we need to consider the right things. Where our mind sits, listen, where our mind sits will ultimately determine what our hands do. It will ultimately determine where our feet go. It will ultimately determine what our lives reflect. We know this is true. Romans 12, 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And here's why that's so, because how you think determines the decisions you make and the decisions you make will determine the life you live. Paul tells us that even if we have places of wrong thinking, that we have weapons that are not fleshly, carnal, they're not earthly, but they're powerful in the Lord to pull down strongholds or inaccurate ways of thinking so that we can think correctly, we can live correctly, we can reflect Christ in the world. This is important because what we reflect on will ultimately determine then what we're reflecting to others. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Reflect on what's been going on in your life. If we can go back, I believe this, and we can look at the temple 
And we can simply remember what the temple is for. We can remember the temple and its purpose. And we can reflect on that. Then I believe this. It will motivate, encourage, and empower us to keep our hand to the plow. I want you to think about those things again in light of where we are today. In light of where we are today, the temple was a place of sacrifice, right? The temple was a place of sacrifice. But think about this in our context. Think about this where we are today. We don't come and gather as the temple to make a sacrifice. We come and gather as the temple to celebrate a sacrifice so that even our generosity, everything we do is out of celebration for what God has done. We get that really backwards a lot of times. But what we need to understand is that the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. What bulls and goats could have never done in that Levitical system, in that Old Testament sacrificial system, Jesus has done once and for all so that no other sacrifice for sin need to be made. That means if you walk in here on Sunday and this is a sacrifice for your sin instead of a celebration of the fact that your sin has been um, paid for and taken away, then we're still not seeing it. We're still not fully getting it. We're still not able to fully celebrate it. That all that was needed for me to be made right with God, to be made as I ought to be, everything that needed to be done was accomplished in Christ. That he was the goat that that, that went to the Lord for the sacrifice and paid the price. And he was the scapegoat for us who also took that sin away. So that now you and I who are unrighteous have become the righteousness of God through Christ. We are the temple, but not a place where we make that sacrifice. We celebrate that sacrifice that's been made. What we sacrifice is in celebration. It's not to pay for our sin. The other thing I would encourage you with is reflect on his presence. The temple was a place that represented God is with them. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28, 18 through 20? He tells them, you know, go into all the world and make disciples. He tells them because all authority has been given to me. He says, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. And he says, and behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. This should give us so much confidence that he is with me, that he is in me, that I am the temple of God and he dwells here. It should give us so much confidence when we gather, so much, so much expectation when we gather because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then if we can reflect on our purpose, Why were they building the temple? It was the temple to be built to glorify God, to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. And Paul said in Ephesians 2 that we too are being built into a holy temple, a place for God to dwell, a place to bring him glory. If we can remember those things, what Jesus did for us, 
and that the, the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. If we can remember his presence with us, if we can remember our purpose, then I would say this, reflecting on God's sacrifice, reflecting on the purpose he's given us and reflecting on his presence with me will ultimately lead us to reflecting God's glory to the world, to putting our hand to the plow and not looking back. And see, here's our response to that. I told you our response is out of celebration. It's not out of, out of a sacrifice for sin. But if you go and you look at Romans chapter 12, verse one, it says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. Think about this. What's he saying? He's saying, look, Paul had just laid out the gospel. He's saying, if you can see this, if you can truly see what God has done for us, he says, then the reasonable thing, not going above and beyond. No, the reasonable thing to do is to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. It's just the reasonable thing if we really see it. It's to offer ourselves to God and say, God, here I am, fill me with your presence. It's to offer ourselves to God and say, God, use me to fill the earth with the knowledge of your glory. God, here I am. Here's my life. Do what you will with it. Today, from Haggai, I would challenge you to give careful thought. He goes and he, he preaches this message. There's actually about five different messages in here. And the people repent and they become obedient. And they finish the temple. We have work to finish. Our potential has not been exhausted. And if we'll bring our lives to him, there's no telling what will happen. He will do what he's promised more than we could ever think or imagine. This past week, I was meeting with a couple of ladies who had an idea for ministry, a ministry idea in the community. And you guys know we've been talking a lot about that. And they came and they began to share this idea and um, it was really good and I feel like it's something the Lord would have us to do. And, and as they're sharing it with me, they get to the end and they both like reach down into their pocketbooks and they pull out two empty jars and they set them on the table in front of me. And you know, we've talked about empty jars a lot here that every time we give God an empty jar, just like that widow with the oil, God just fills up the jar. As long as we give him empty jars, he's filling up those jars. And they said, here's our jars. We're ready to be used. That God would fill us, that we can fill others, that God would use us in this community. That's the response, right? That's the response. That is the reasonable response to the gospel, to Jesus, to his presence to the purpose he's given us. So Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. I thank you for the sacrifice you've made. I thank you for calling us to a greater purpose, a purpose that's not centered around us, Lord. That would be too small. But a purpose, Lord, that centers on you. Lord, that, 
the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. As your people, your body, your temple invest in others, does the work of ministry, takes the authority you've given to go and make disciples of all nations. Lord, we thank you for that. And we praise you today. Would you stir our hearts, God, for the things that you love. In Jesus' name, amen.